Amen. And then that song have a great declaration for us today. That Christ has risen from the dead. And in his resurrection there is hope for this life and the life that is to come. Many of you are aware that we have been going through uh, the Bible together in a reading plan. If you haven't jumped in on that, I encourage you to pick up one of the Bible reading plans. It's got a light blue cover. You'll find one on the, uh, the table in the foyer as well as the table here in the sanctuary in the back. And uh, if you haven't been following along, don't worry, just jump in on the day that is today. And then as time rolls on, get caught up with the scripture reading that you may have missed from the beginning of the year. But what we're doing in the sermon time is I'm preaching from one of the passages that we had read previous in the previous week. And today and for a few weeks, we're going to be talking about some Bible stories in the Old Testament and learning from the Old Testament of uh, Characters, if you put it that way, Old Testament uh, folks who have who have uh, shown us what it's like to try to live out the promises of God, even as they fail and as they succeed, we see ourselves in their stories, and so it can be of great encouragement and instruction to us. So today we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob, and the next week we'll look at Joseph and so on. But today we're looking at the story of Jacob, and I want to invite you to turn over to Genesis 32 with me. Specifically, we're going to read a passage from Genesis 32, and we're going to pick up in verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 31. This story is taking place in an interesting time in Jacob's life, is he is returning home to see his brother, and the last that he heard of his brother Esau, Esau was trying or waiting to kill him, and now he's returning home. Home. That's what's happening in the life of Jacob as we read Genesis 32, starting in verse 24. On his way back to see his brother, we read, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wretched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We do have Kingdom Kids today, so those who are uh, participating in Kingdom Kids, you can head to the foyer. That's our ministry for those who are four years old, out of nursery age, up to second grade. And our Kingdom Kids worker are going to meet them in the foyer. They're going to have a great time over in our education building, learning and worshiping at their level. And that's where you can pick them up after the service today, right over here in the education building. Uh, Before we dive into the story of Jacob, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Father God, you have uh, called us together on this day to worship you, to remember things that we know are true but sometimes forget, and to praise you for the things that we've experienced, the promises fulfilled in the previous week. Uh, We come together to sing to one another and encourage one another through the gift of music. We come to give our 
our tithes and offerings as a way to give back a portion of what you blessed us with. And we fellowship with one another as a means of encouragement and to encourage one another. And we pray and we talk to you. God, as we talk to you, we know that you hear us. That's the kind of God that you are, that you want to hear from us, your people, your creation, that we matter to you. Our days are numbered, the hairs on our head, you know everyone, some with fewer than others. You know our thoughts. You know what is going to transpire in our lives before it takes place. You know all about us, each and every one of us. And you care about us. God, we're grateful that that's the kind of God you are. And we pray that you administer to us through your word this morning. That your Holy Spirit would take the words of scripture. The story of Jacob. And God, in some small way, transform our lives. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, like many folks in the Bible, just as in life, Jacob was a complex character. Now, I got to say from the from the start, sometimes as I'm preaching, I get names mixed up. So if I say Joseph, for example, instead of Jacob, just know I meant Jacob. If I call his wife by the wrong name or one of his wives by the wrong name, you, I hope you'll be able to track along and forgive me for that. I've, I've tried to make sure I got the names down. But sometimes as I'm just sharing the sermon, I get the names mixed up. But this guy's name is Jacob. I know that for sure. All right. I know that for sure. And we read about Jacob in our Bible reading plan the last couple weeks, actually. It would have been two weeks ago that we were first introduced to Jacob. Jacob actually goes through the process of being renamed, as we see happen to folks in the Bible uh, throughout the Old Testament and New. And we read about the moment that that took place in, in Genesis 32, that He's, it's a strange story. He's wrestling with a man and yet it's God. And, and somehow he understands that he's wrestled with God. And yet the scriptures say it's a man and, and he, the man can't overpower him. But you figure if it's God, he could overpower Jacob. But then in the end, you see the power of this man when he just touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of place. I mean, it's just a very interesting story. And there's a lot going on on the surface, but there's a lot going on underneath this story as well. One of the things that's going on is Jacob undergoes a name change. Jacob is no longer going to be known as Jacob. He's going to be known as Israel. Now, you've heard that name before, Israel, the name of God's people, the name of Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. Where did that name Israelites come from? It comes from right here, the renaming of Jacob. Jacob would go on to have 12 sons and one daughter. But the 12 sons become the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 are important in the story of Israel, but also becomes important in the life of Jesus and us as a church because we read about Jesus choosing how many disciples or apostles? 12. That was no coincidence. Jesus is saying, just as God made a promise to Abraham... And the 12 descendants are the 12 uh, heads of the tribe of Israel coming from Abraham's grandson, who was Jacob. Just as God made a promise through them in Christ, there is a fulfillment of that promise. And these 12 disciples are, the fulfill, are, are showing the fulfillment of that promise that 
opening the door, opening a way for all of us to come into this promise, this family of God. So the very same promise that God gives Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in Genesis 12, God extends that promise to Jacob's father, Isaac, and to Jacob himself. It's a promise to fill the earth with their descendants. It's a promise to bless them, but not only bless them, but bless all of those who bless them. And not only that, but to open the way for blessing to be extended to everyone who walks on the earth through one of Abraham's seed. That is part of the promise. We understand that one seed that comes, that one descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that comes to bless the entire world is none other than Jesus himself. So that's what kind of paints a picture of Jacob and and the importance that he is in the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And so his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. But what does the name Jacob mean in the first place? That takes us back. To Genesis 25, I'm just going to kind of recount the story for you. You don't have to turn there, but you're welcome to. But you read it. If you're in the Bible reading plan, you read over this. Jacob is one set of twins, right? Or or he is one part of a set of twins. He uh, has a brother named Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau are born to Isaac. And again, Isaac is the son of Abraham. This is all this, how all this is fitting together, right? And so when Isaac uh, and his wife, uh, Rebekah, have their, chi- have their children, uh, Esau and Jacob, they're wrestling together in the womb. And then when they come out of the womb, Esau goes first, and right on the, literally on the hills of Esau comes Jacob, grasping his heel. And that becomes his name, the grasper. Jacob means he who grasps the heel. But there's an idiom, a saying that goes along with this. He who grasps the heel also means he who deceives. So from the beginning of Jacob's life, he is seen as one who deceives and he lives up to the name he who deceives. He and his brother, just as they wrestled in the womb, they would wrestle outside of the womb. Just as they fought inside the womb, they would fight Outside the womb. And you just say, okay, well, that's brothers for you. I mean, that's what, that's what happens in the lives of brothers and sisters, siblings as a whole. They can get on each other's nerves and bother one another and irritate. And you just know the right buttons to push. And I will say it, it is a little more serious than that. When, when, the, when their story ends before the scripture reading today, remember, Esau had made a promise, I'm going to kill my brother. So it gets pretty serious here. It gets kind of dark. Well, why would he want to kill his brother? Because Jacob lived up to his name, Deceiver. One story that kind of paints the picture here for us comes out of Genesis 27. And there, uh, or no, let me back up. Genesis 25, excuse me. There, uh, Jacob is known for being kind of uh, a mama's boy. He, he liked to stay in the house. He, liked, he didn't like to go and hunt like Esau and kill things. And he liked to cook the things that were killed. And so he's making some stew. And his brother comes in from the field. And his brother, whether he really was in this state or not, at least 
psychologically he felt, I'm going to die if I don't eat. And if you've ever said that, you know it's probably not true, right? Like, you, like I, I know I can miss a meal or 12, and I'd be fine. I got storage. I'd be all right. But that's how he felt. Esau felt like, I've been, I've been out here. I've been hunting. I'm worn out. I'm tired. And if I don't eat, I'm going to die. And so he comes in, and he smells the stew, and it smells delicious. He's like, I just want a bowl. And his brother says, uh, sure, you can, you can have a bowl, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your birthright. I will sell you this bowl of stew for your birthright. The birthright was his inheritance. Esau came out of the womb first, remember? That means he is technically the oldest, which means everything that his father has, Esau would get half of it. And then after that, it would be divided amongst all the other children, the male children. That's how they did it back in the day. And so Esau is going to get more than his share because he is the firstborn son and he is expected to take on the family name and handle the family business and so on. And he's such a, in a psychological state of, of despair about his hunger that he sells his birthright, his inheritance, to his brother for a bowl of stew. And so at the end of that story, we read that Esau ate and drank He got up and left and he despised his birthright. I don't know that that was the beginning of their battle as twins, but it certainly was one of those high points and it wasn't the only one. A couple chapters later in Genesis 27, we see something else similar taking place. Now I said, Jacob is kind of a mama's boy and Esau was his father's son. And in fact, the scriptures point out that Esau was loved by his father more than Jacob. And and Esau and Jacob's or Jacob's mom loved Jacob more than she loved Esau. So they played favorites. Now, in my house, we say, you're my favorite all the time. And we tell all the kids that. And they know it's kind of an inside joke because not one of them are a favorite. But when they're acting right, they do kind of become the favorite on that day. You know what I mean? And, uh, but truly, for their whole life long, ever, the, the household seemed to know that Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau. And Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Now, there was a, uh, there was a prophetic uh, idea that Jacob was going to become the one who led the family into the future and not Esau, which would have been uncommon because I said before, the oldest tends to be the one. And I'm guessing this is running in the back of Rebecca's mind because when the time comes for Isaac to pass away and to give his blessing to his son, which is a way of handing down the mantle, Uh, Jacob's mother comes up with this idea to trick Isaac, Jacob and Esau's father, into giving that mantle to Jacob and not Esau. Now, one of the things we learned earlier in the story is that Jacob is kind of a smooth skin man. And Esau was very hairy. Seems like a weird thing to put in there. But there's a point to it. Because when it comes time to trick, trick Jacob and Esau's father, Isaac... Rebecca knows exactly what to do. She knows that Isaac's eyesight is failing in his old age. You can't see. And so if she can just trick him into thinking that Jacob is Esau, then Jacob will get the blessing of his father. The mantle will be passed on to him. And it's all going to work out. We just need to do a little deceiving. And that's exactly what they do. They get some goat skins and they put it all over, all over Jacob's body. And they put, put one of Esau's jackets on him so that he kind of smells like his brother. And so when he goes in 
and he speaks to his father and his father is asked for like his last meal. Can you get me my last meal? He says, Esau, go get it, go catch something, kill it and make me a meal so that I can give you my blessing. It was a whole kind of ceremonial deal. And so what happens is uh, Jacob sneaks in there after Esau is left to go on the hunt, brings food with him and talks to his father, Isaac. It's me. Esau, I'm here for my blessing. Here's the food. And Isaac's not dumb, though. You read the story and you think, surely he would have known. But you could see there's seeds of doubt. Isaac says, who is this? And he's thinking to himself, I don't know that he says it out loud, but he says, this sounds a lot like my older son Esau. So he says, come here. And he feels the hair on his arms. He says, okay, but, but he's hairy like Esau. Even though he sounds like Jacob, he's hairy like Esau. And he smells like Esau. So this must be my older son, but he still has these seeds of doubt because it sounds like it's his younger son, Jacob. So Jacob receives the blessing or the mantle from his father. And this is the moment where you hear the rage in Esau when he returns home and he finds out. It's actually, if, you re- if, if you've read it, you, you know it's a heartbreaking story because Esau comes home, he's, co- he's killed, he's Uh, cooked a meal. He's there for this incredibly important moment between father and the older son. And he finds out that Jacob, the deceiver has snuck in with the help of their mother to steal his blessing from his father. And it is heart wrenching because he says, do you not have a blessing for me? And, And I don't understand exactly how all that worked back then, but there was something about once you spoke it, it was, it was done. There's no taking it back. I've already blessed him. And so he gives Esau a far inferior blessing. And and Esau leaves and he says, as soon as my father Isaac dies, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. Of course, uh, evidently he didn't say that uh, silently. This was known. So Jacob and Esau's mother takes Jacob and says, look, you need to get out of here. You need to get on the run. You need to get out of here. On his way, running away, he is going to, I believe it's his mother's brother, to go and live, find a wife, marry, settle down, and hopefully Esau will eventually not be so mad and he can come back home. That's the plan. On his way. To his uncle's place, which was would have been several hundred miles from where they lived in Canaan. On his way, he has another incredible moment in his story. Some of you may have heard about this stairway to heaven. No, it's not just a song. It is also a story in scripture. This stairway to heaven, uh, or, or sometimes it's called a, a ziggurat. It kind of looks like a pyramid with steps. If you've ever heard of the Tower of Babel, that's what the Tower of Babel would have looked like. A large pyramid with steps. It's like this encounter between humanity and God. We go as high as we can go to touch the heavens where God resides. And he has this vision. Sometimes you hear it called a ladder. Jacob's ladder. Stories told in Genesis 28. He has a dream. And in this dream he has a vision. A stairway resting on the earth. A ladder, a ziggurat, however you want to think of it. The bottom of it touching the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven. And the angels of God, the scriptures say, were ascending and descending. And there above it stood the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Jacob while he's on the run, scared for his life because of his brother Esau. 
This is what the Lord says to him. God says to Jacob, I am the Lord your God, the father, uh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And all peoples will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like a reiteration of the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. That was handed down to Jacob's father, Isaac, and now given to Jacob himself. Now, what is that? What is he communicating this stairway, this this ladder, this ziggurat from heaven to earth? Exactly what God says at the end. I will never leave you. I am with you. That is a powerful testimony to us, I think, because think about all we've covered with Jacob. I mean, his very name means deceiver, and he's proven that he earned that name. Through his life, the things he had done to his brother specifically showed that he was a deceiver. And deceiving, I don't have to tell you, generally a bad thing. You might even call it a sin. He did wrong. It's the whole reason he's on the run, scared for his life because of his brother Esau. Esau had every right to be angry. Not saying he should want to kill his brother, but he had every right to be angry with his brother, Jacob. And yet God says, Jacob, I'm with you. And I I just want to stop here and say, that is a promise to you and to me. That no matter your past, you can't outsend God's love for you. He makes the same promise to you and me. I am with you. I'm not leaving you. The promises I made to you, I will fulfill. You remember part of what we talked about, the promises of God depend on the faithfulness of God, despite our unfaithfulness. And the highlight of that is the promise of salvation doesn't depend on our faithfulness to God. It only depends on God's faithfulness to us. This is the story of the latter. And this is the story Jesus used to talk about himself. John 1.51, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man, a way of talking about Himself. What's He saying? He's saying, just as God made a promise to a sinner like Jacob that God would be with him, so I am with all of you. No matter your sinful state, I came down From heaven to earth. I am God in the flesh. Leaving the glories of heaven to come to a sinful place like this. To be with you. And I just want you to hear it as clearly as I can put it. That you cannot sin your way out of God's love. Now you may sin your way out of the experience of God's love. You may not feel that he loves you. You may feel distance because of your sin, but if you have come to Jesus and asked him to forgive you of your sin and make you right with God, you are a child of God now and forever. You got in by grace. You stay in by grace. You got in despite your sin. You stay in that right relationship with God despite your sin. 
And there's something about the story of Jacob that, that highlights this before we even get to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. We see in the story of Jacob that this is simply who God is. One of, God, one of Jesus' disciples named John would say it that way, that God is love. Not just that God is loving, but it is part of his character, it's part of his nature, it's part of his makeup to be a loving God to us. Does it mean he doesn't get angry with us? Of course not. Jacob is in exile, running, on the run. He is, he is, in a sense, paying the penalty for his sins. And yet, even as he is being disciplined by God, he is loved by God. So I'm not saying sin all you want, it'll be fine. It won't. Sin all you want, and it will create distance between you and God. But it does not change God's loving feeling and action towards you and me. In other words, he doesn't give up on us. And he doesn't give up on Jacob. Despite all of his sinning, all of his deceiving, God does not give up on Jacob. He continues on with Jacob. He gives Jacob this promise and this vision that I am with you, just like I promised Abraham, your grandfather, and Isaac, your father. I'm going to be with you. And the promises I gave them are promises I give to you. I think in a sense, this is one of the great lessons of Jacob's life. In a way, it's the same kind of uh, lesson we can learn from a lot of folks in the Old Testament into the New. But there's something unique about Jacob that I think is worth pointing out. Is that in all of this, Jacob experiences change ever so slightly. Progress, moving forward. He does indeed come back. That was a story we read earlier. That he leaves after a long uh, stint with his uncle slash father-in-law. And there's a whole story there we're not going to get into today. But it's quite interesting. But he does leave and he does head back home. And of course he's thinking and is in fearing for his life. And then God gives him this name change. What does the name change mean? Is that even as we have said, God does not give up on us and he loves us where we're at. He always wants to move us to where he wants us to be. He wants us to become the person he's called us to be. The person, in fact, that we want to be. And one way of saying it that has stuck with me is that God is uh, easily pleased but never satisfied. He loves to see us take steps of faith forward, but he always wants to see us become more and more like Christ. So he never gives up on us, but at the same time, he's always pushing us not to settle where we are, but to advance and move forward, becoming more of who God has called us to be and experiencing more of God's promises that he's given us. And that is what's happening also in the story of Jacob. As he returns home and he's fearful about his brother Esau, he has this encounter with a man, or is it God? He wrestles with them and he looks more powerful than the man, but is he because the man just simply touches his hip and then he has to walk with a limp, presumably for the rest of his life? What is, what's happening here in the midst of this name change? Well, we talked about what Jacob means. The name Jacob means deceiver. But what does the name Israel mean? Israel is a, mean, is a name that's probably best understood as he who contends with God. And you get that in the context 
of the story. Again, in chapter 32, verse 28, then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, he who deceives, but Israel, he who contends with God, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. What is the second lesson that we can learn from Jacob? One is that God never gives up on us. And the second is that yet God is always pushing us further and further. And one of the commendable traits of Jacob is this. He does not give up. Yes, it is God's work in his life. But somewhere mixed in there is Jacob's will and determination to never give up. Even as his brother Esau wants to see him dead, he does not give up. Even as he goes to his uncle Laban, finds a wife, works to earn her hand for years, only to be tricked by his father-in-law and given, the, given her older sister, only to have to work another set of seven years, or is it six years, somewhere in there. Even as his father-in-law cheats him out of all that he had, or a portion of what he had earned, even through all the difficulty, even in the midst of the fear of going back and approaching his brother Esau, knowing that his brother may, may want to kill him, And in fact, he takes everything he owns and says, we're going to make two camps. In case Esau attacks one, at least I still got the other set. Even through all of that. And stories to come that we're not going to get into today because that will be a part of next week. One of the great lessons of Jacob is just as God does not give up on him, Jacob doesn't give up on God and the promises of God. He continues to move forward. And I've said this before, but pretty much every good thing in my life came from not giving up. I can look back on my life just as you can look back on yours and see those moments where I just, I wanted to give up. Being in school and knowing that completing my schoolwork was an important part of what God had called me to do. And yet I wanted to give up. When things get hard in marriage, we want to give up. When things get hard with parenting, we want to give up. Things get hard at work. We want to give up. There's a number of scenarios that we have been through. We may be struggling with addiction and we want to give up. We may be struggling with health issues and we just want to throw our hands in there and say, I give up. There's no shortage of lists that we could write down together and come up with. These are the moments in life I wanted to give up. And yet those are the moments in life that God uses To build who he's called us to be through those difficulties, through those struggles, through contending with him and with others. God is building into us who he's called us to be in those moments. If we don't give up. And so that's kind of become through the years one of my mantras when things get tough. Just 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 don't give up. Today looks bad. Tomorrow will probably be better. It's hard right now. But if I don't give up, I bet the future will get a little bit brighter. If I just don't give up, I think the goodness of God is going to come my way. If I just don't give up. And I see that in the story of Jacob, that throughout his life, he had reason Two reasons, two really good reasons to give up that mirrors our own existence, I think. 
One is sin and one is circumstances. And yet he didn't give up in the face of either. You and I are sinners just like Jacob. We're going to make decisions that displease God. We're going to do things that put distance, it seems, between us and God. We're going to do some things that create shame in our life. We're going to do some things we don't want anybody to know about. And it will cause us to want to give up on ourselves and on God, on others. Maybe you felt that before. I can't go to church because this is in my life. I can't pray because I've done this. If it weren't for that, yes, I would do that. But I I can't get close to God because I've made these mistakes. I'm thankful for Jacob's example that though he was living up to his name as a deceiver, he did not surrender and give up his life because of his sin. And I wonder if some of you may be feeling that. You've got some stuff going on in your life, some sin in your life that you feel like has put so much distance between you and God, you could just throw your hands in there and say, give up. I just give up. How could God love me? I can't love myself. You look in the mirror and you feel that guilt, that shame. A lot of that God, he wants you to feel guilt over shame so you'll come to him. But not shame over sin as if you are worthless and unlovable because the cross proves that totally untrue. The cross is God's declaration that no matter what you do, I can and will love you. Even to the point of giving my son for you, I will love you. And the second is circumstances. The first reason we are tempted to give up is because of our own sin. Our second is because of our circumstances. I've already kind of outlined for you some of the things Jacob went through that were really no fault of his own with his father-in-law and so on. But he continues on. He presses on. He doesn't let circumstances define his decision-making to move forward in the promises of God. God has given him promises. Promises handed down by his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. He is now a recipient of those promises of God. So no matter how dark the day looks, he's not going to give up on those promises. He continues to move forward. Becoming the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. A very important part of Israel's story. He himself carrying the name Israel. And what that tells me is that it matters very little how things look around me. If God's given me a promise, it's sure. It doesn't matter how dark today looks. What matters is the promise of God that there will be light. It doesn't matter how difficult it is now as much as it matters that there is a promise ahead of me that if I will not give up but continue in the path that God has called me to walk, there is hope. Makes me think of the Apostle Paul. You you all read a little bit about his story in the Bible reading plan as well because we're reading an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and then one out of Psalms and Proverbs. And Paul was, of course, uh, Saul before he went through his own name change, just as Jacob did. Saul was a very uh, religious man, a Pharisee. That was a part of Jude- uh, or a sect of Judaism that was very stringent about understanding the law of God, following the law of God. In fact, they would say, if this is sin, we're going to draw a fence around that sin and say, don't even come close to that sin. And so they come up with all these rules and laws themselves that weren't necessarily handed down to them by God, but they felt, you know, and if we don't want to sin, then let's not even get close to sin. And that's what they would do. And they were very proud of their religion. And yet, even with a lot of God talk, it was often absence of God. 
And there was none more proud of their ability to keep the law and the laws written about the law to keep you from breaking the law than a guy named Saul. In fact, he saw Jesus, his disciples, as lawbreakers. Well, what are they doing healing on the Sabbath? What are they doing working on the Sabbath? That's just one example. What do they do? What is Jesus can't say, I forgive you of your sin. And Jesus said that only God can say that if only God can say it and you say it, what are you saying about you? That you and God are like this. There's no difference between you. Jesus would say stuff like that. And it outraged the Pharisees and Paul before he was Paul was Saul and he was one of them. And so he went around arresting Christians, making sure that they paid the penalty for their sin. And, uh, he was even there, at, we read about Stephen's death. He was even there watching uh, Stephen be stoned to death, giving his approval, holding everybody's jacket so they could really, you know, really get into that throw. It's kind of an ugly scene. That guy becomes a Christian. God changes his name to Paul in a sense. Where Saul was Hebraic and uh, was a name that he would have received from birth. And it was a part of his history in the past of being God's people. Paul was a Greek name and was about the future and reaching the Gentiles. And that's what God had called him to do. Right from the start. And you can imagine someone like that, what persecution is going to come their way. And a lot of it did. Not only did circumstances around him look bleak. But sin from the past had to wear on him too. And he writes these words as he's writing. He's writing to a church that is struggling was sin themselves. A church that is saying, Saul, we don't think you're all that impressive. I'm not sure why we should listen to you. Paul writes them a series of letters, and in one of those letters, he's not shy about talking about the weakness that we all feel. That weakness that may lead us to want to give up. And Paul says, to that church and to us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he says, This is what God has said to me. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, in the midst of your sin and in the midst of your circumstances that may cause you to want to give up. Just as Jacob had every reason to give up, we may have our own reasons. But God said to Paul and he says to us, my grace is sufficient for you, It's enough for you to not give up. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, if God's power is made perfect in my weakness, if God can show off in the midst of my struggle with circumstances or sin, Paul says, therefore, I, I'm going to boast about it then. I'm glad that I'm weak. I'm glad that I'm struggling. I'm glad that I'm going through hardship and difficulty. Why? So that in my weakness, he says. He talks about those weaknesses. The insults he faced. The hardships he went through. The persecutions. The difficulties. He says, I boast in all of that. Because when I am weak, then I am strong. So what Jacob does and what Saul does, or, or what Paul does, what God does, is he flips it on its head. And says life is challenging and difficult partially because we make bad decisions. And also because other, make, other people make bad decisions that impact our life. 
And sometimes it's just the way the world goes about its brokenness is it impacts us. There's a broken world we live in, and therefore we will experience things, something like Paul. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties, he says. But it's in those moments that God uses to make us who he's called us to be. And that is Jacob's story. In the midst of his sin and circumstances, God says, I am going to find a way to turn this to your benefit. I'm going to find a way to turn this around and it will strengthen you because it'll be me and not you. So you may be feeling that yourself in some area of your life. You just want to kind of throw your hands in the air and say, I give up, forget it, I quit. I can't keep going on. Can I tell you, you're perfectly placed to experience the power of God. Because it may just be that up until that moment, you've been doing life in your own power, in your own strength, trying to figure it out yourself. It's exactly what Jacob did. That's why he was a deceiver. He wanted the promises of God, so he took them without the power of God, without the presence of God in his life. He just reached out and stole them. And we can be the same way. Instead of going in God's power, we go in our own And what Paul experiences when all that power is gone, when all there is is hopelessness, weakness, that's when God is poised to do his best work if we will not give up. So that's a question for us. What area of our life are we tempted to give up? And can we allow God, by simply not giving up, to turn those moments of weakness into moments of strength that you will look back on in five years or ten years and, be, and say, I am so glad that even though I'm a sinner and I wanted to give up, even though circumstances were difficult and I wanted to give up, I'm so glad I didn't because I saw the power of God come to me in a way I never experienced before. And it wasn't me. It was all him. Let's pray. Father God, there's so much of Jacob's story that shows up in our lives. So much of his weakness. His sinfulness. His difficult circumstances. In one way or another, we can sympathize with, empathize with. We we know what it's like. And God, I, I would imagine that there are There are at least a few of us here this morning that are feeling that. We're feeling the weight of sin and circumstances and we may just want to give up. But God, I pray that we would not. That we would wrestle with you in the midst of the challenges we face. And we may come out on the other side with a limp, yes. But with the story of your power to transform our lives. So God, I pray for those who are struggling mightily today. That they would look to you, see what you can do, not what they can do. See your strength, not their strength. Lean into you, experience your promises. And simply by not giving up that you may write a story that they can. God rejoice in for years to come. 
This is what we pray. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.